appreciate you coming in. He goes, you got two options. He goes, one, you can continue to, to switch it because I still believe in you. And he goes, the second option is you stop and I pull your money. I take your scholarship away and you got you got to play it, pay on your own or you got to leave. And I was like, well, mom and dad don't have the money. Uh, I'm going to have to figure this thing out. And I said, thanks for the talk, coach. I'm going to, I went back in the cage for the next two hours that day <laughs> trying to figure it out. And by the end of that season in 1992, I was the starting shortstop for the California Golden Bears in the College World Series. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews Live from the Grotto of Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, Neil, I'm doing awesome. How about you, my friend? And I can't wait to talk to our guests because I love baseball. Oh, see, that's the, I didn't know that. Then I'm going to have to get you more and more baseball players. Our guest today is Jeff Bloom, former Houston Astro. Much more. I see the Montreal Expos on that list. So that'll be an interesting conversation. And he's a, now a podcaster as well as a sports analyst from with uh, Believe in Astros. Jeff, thanks for stopping by, by man. How are you? Uh, good to be on. I feel underdressed. Yeah, absolutely. Let's just jump. Let's just jump specifically enough. He always outdresses me. I need to maybe beat, the, <laughs> beat that next week. Um, let's kind of jump into. Did you always want to be a baseball player growing up? Um, yeah, I think I had the idea that I wanted to do something uh, athletically. I wasn't exactly sure what it would be, but you know, as a kid, Halloween would roll around. I'd wear, uh, you know, pick a baseball uniform or wear my little league uniform around and uh, fantasize about being a, a big leaguer someday for sure. Mm -hmm. Oh, that is so cool. And uh, what was your first break, you know, to get in? Did you go to minors? Did you go right to majors? It Oh man, dude! No, it, it, I was one of the longer. I wasn't the uh, the Mike Trout or the uh, Shohei Otani type. I was more of the the guy that had to grind a little bit and create my own avenues. Um, but it was fun in doing so, though, because you know you learn a lot about yourself. You learn how much you actually love the game. But uh, you know, I didn't. I didn't really realize. I think probably the first break I got was my my junior year in high school. Loved playing basketball, was freshman MVP, JV MVP, and I thought my next step was going to go to play varsity. And uh, my varsity basketball coach pulled me off to the side. He goes, if you want to be any good at this game, you're going to have to quit baseball. And I said, really? <laughs> you know, I, I thought I was pretty good, but um, just looking at my size, my athleticism, and uh, I, I said, I appreciate the thought, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play baseball primarily, and that was the best thing I ever did. Yeah, because you always think is what's your size, Jeff? So that, that that you were a basketball player too. What what was your size? Oh, I was six foot three, about a buck sixty in high school, and I was I was stopped. I wasn't going to get any taller. Um, I don't think I was going to get any faster. But I knew that you know my frame was going to fill out when I got a little bit older, and that only meant that I would be slowing down. So it fit better for baseball. Okay, uh, that's amazing. So, what was your first break in the majors? Um. This is, sounds terrible. My first break was when Orlando Cabrera broke his ankle in 1999 and opened up a spot for me to get called up. <laughs> that was my big break. Wow. Oh, wow. And did you think it like in that process, the minors in that process to get to the final call up? That's a big thing, right? Especially now in baseball with the competition level and all going through this compared to other sports where you get drafted and you're going to go and play. But in baseball, that's not it. You go to the minors, you learn the process and then wait for the call up. Yeah. And, you know, even 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when I was playing in the minor leagues, you know, there were, it was different. You had to really, they had an X number of at bats they wanted you to get in the minor leagues, X number of innings pitched before you could even be thought about getting into the big leagues, unless you were that phenom. And uh, I had been working my way through the minor leagues and actually I was enrolled in classes for fall to go back to Cal. Cause I thought that was going to be my last year in professional baseball. And, uh, you know, I'd been kind of struggling a little bit, had a good year that my last year in 1999 before I got called up. But at the same time, I was 25, 26 years old. And I was really like, you know, how is this going to look on a resume? I was kind of looking towards the. And I said, I'm going to put everything I can into this season, see what happens. Um, and at the same time, I enrolled in classes to go back to uh, Cal and finish up my degree. But lo and behold, I get called up on August 19th, 1999 and uh, turned myself into a, a valuable utility player. And I never got sent back down until I was uh, officially retired in 2012. Okay. Wow, that's awesome. You know, you must have a couple of uh, really cool stories that pop out in your mind that you always like those defining fun stories or defining difficult stories. Either way, I'm happy to hear either one, a fun one or a difficult one or either, you know, in, in baseball. 
Well, you know what? I you know, I switch hit in call in uh in professional baseball, but I did not switch hit until I got to college baseball. And a lot of people are kind of floored by that because I learned how to switch hit when I was 18 years old in 1991 in Division One Pac-12 baseball, and uh, that wasn't the easiest thing to do. And three years later, I get drafted to play professional baseball. So I was only three years old as far as being a left-handed hitter. Um, a lot of people take that for granted and just assume, oh, this guy's been hitting left-handed his entire life, but. It was a uh, it was a moment in uh, fall ball when my head coach Bob Milano uh, pulled me off to the side and said, "You're going to learn how to switch hit." And I was like, "Nah, you know that didn't sound like a great idea. You you signed me to be a right-handed hitting shortstop for you." And he goes, "I think you've got the athleticism. I think you can do it." And uh, being 18, a little bit too cocky, maybe at the time, I said, "Yeah, you know what? You're damn right. I can go out there and do that." And uh, I proceeded to work at it, and we played a fall ball schedule where I proceeded to go 0 for 50. I did not get one hit. The only bonus was I wasn't striking out a lot. I was actually making contact. I just didn't have enough authority to figure out how to get a hit. And uh, after those 50 at-bats and after that fall ball schedule was over, I walked into Coach Bob Milano's office, and he was old school. He had the dip in. He had a chaw in one cheek. He had a cup of coffee and a cigarette. And he's just sitting there puffing, smoking, and spitting, and uh, looks at me and he goes, what do, you, what do you need to talk about, son? I said, well, I suck. And I go, I hate sucking. Uh, you know, I'm killing the team. I'm killing myself. And I go, what's, you know, what am I getting out of this? And he's like, well, he goes, you got two options. He goes, I appreciate you coming in. He goes, you got two options. He goes, one, you can continue to, to switch it because I still believe in you. And he goes, the second option is you stop. And I pull your money. I take your scholarship away and you got to, you got to play it, pay on your own, or you got to leave. And I was like, well, mom and dad don't have the money. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to figure this thing out. And I said, thanks for the talk coach. I'm going to, I went back in the cage for the next two hours that day <laughs> trying to figure it out. And by the end of that season in 1992, I was the starting shortstop for the California golden bears in the college world series. And then you fast forward to 2005 I hit the game-winning home run in game three of the World Series, and guess which side of the plate I'm standing on when I hit that home run? Left-handed. Left <laughs> so, I mean, this guy, he he was my, uh, you know, he was that father figure I'd always been looking for, and he was that coach that always uh, found a way to encourage me, and uh, I, I thank him every day. He's got a big picture of it in his office of me hitting that home run, and I owe it all to him uh, for being able to teach me and convince me that I could go out there and hit left-handed. Uh, How was that feeling? Up. That's all right. Real quick, real quick. Yeah. What, what was the mechanical change that you figured out, you know, the left, you know, to make it happen? Which one should I tell you about? Because I, I turned into the Cal Ripken of left-handed swings. There was a, uh, there was a famous Cal baseball player that played it uh, for the New York Yankees and had a rookie year where he hit 25 home runs. Name was Kevin Moss. And, uh, you know, big, strong guy was in a real squatted down position. So that was like my initial swing. I'm like, well, I'm going to swing like that guy. He went to Cal. He was good. He hit power. And I was terrible. It wasn't. An, and then I, I decided to stand up a little bit flatter bat. I made a lot of contact, slapped the ball around, um, figured out how to get hits. And this is back when I had speed, too. But uh, it wasn't until 19, 1998. I had elbow surgery and was sent from AAA down to uh, West Palm Beach to play A-ball, kind of work my progression back uh, as far as rehab. But before I got on the field, I actually had a chance to sit in the cage and just take thousands of swings. And I had there was a hitting coach down there named Frank Kremblis. And he's watching, we're working, toiling away. And uh, he goes, have you ever thought about getting your hands away from your body? Because I'm a big guy. Um, and he goes, get your hands away from your body and kind of clear some space to let your hands move a little bit more freely. Um, that was one adjustment. All of a sudden, I started to drive the ball, and I developed a little bit of a toe tap to get my weight on my backside. And next thing you know, I'm driving the ball out of the ballpark. Uh, finished 1998, great. Go to big league camp in 1999. Go to AAA, have a great year, and get called up, and the rest is history. Wow. Awesome. You know, thinking about, you talked about the World Series, winning a World Series. Like, again, I'm, when you get the chance to interview all these players, being an analyst now, and talking to all your former colleagues in the in, in Major League Baseball, not many of them can say they're world champions, right? That's got to feel great. Yeah. It, it does feel great. You know, I, I, had a, I had a modestly good career, you know, that I'm beginning to realize, you know, now looking back on it at the time, it felt like a complete grind, but uh, I appreciate my opportunities 
Um, but it's kind of funny. You walk around the ballpark a little bit and everybody, you know, you kind of get the, I know that guy works for the Astros, but what does he do? Who is he? And you kind of get the initial, Oh, Hey, nice to meet you. The next day when people actually go to Google or go to baseball reference and they see, you know, some of the stuff that you've done all of a sudden it's like, Oh, Hey, Jeff, nice to meet you. All your street cred goes way up once they realize that you want to ring as a player. Wow. Two part question. First is, you know, which which pitcher or or pitchers were you like thrilled that we're going to be throwing at you that day, and, and which ones weren't you too excited about? Uh, the the worst are the easiest ones. Even though I, I I hit a home run off Randy Johnson, but I think that might have been my only hit off him, and he absolutely destroyed me uh, for obvious reasons. Like he did a bunch of big leaguers uh, at the time. The other one was Kevin Brown. I thought that dude hated me for whatever reason. He was just you know ginormous you know, wore like a youth schmedium shirt when he pitched, was just huffing and puffing, sweating, growling. And uh, he would throw me 92, 93 mile hour split fingers, and I could not figure it out. And uh, he he would destroy me. I was like two for 30 off of him. And then uh, on the other side, if uh, Jeff Supon was ever pitching, I knew I was going to play that day, whether it was in the playoffs or whether it was in regular season, I would look at our schedule. And if we were facing up against him, I knew every manager I had would put me in against him because I had just ridiculous numbers off him. <laughs> what would he say now by you telling that? Would he agree with you? Oh, absolutely. I'm sure he would. I mean, it's hard to argue. I think I literally, I literally had about 30 or maybe 30, 40 at bats off him and hit 500 with like three home runs. Don't you wish that was your numbers the whole time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might have my own podcast bigger than this, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, obviously, I'm from Boston, and if you didn't know that, so you know the Red Sox near and okay. dear to my heart. Who who would you rather uh, be up against, Pedro or Roger Clemens? Roger Clemens, any day of the week. Uh, you know, uh, I, I didn't face. Fortunately, I didn't face either of them all that much. I think I faced Pedro more, but I had the misfortune of facing Pedro during that 99, 2000, 2001 stretch that he was on where it, it was, it was wiffle ball, Nintendo, you know, it was like video game type stuff that he was throwing up there. Um, as much fun as it is to compete against guys that are that good. It's, it's a realization that they are that good. And that was probably the the most fun I've had and the most horrifying times that I've had because I get questions like this all the time. What was it like facing Pedro in his prime? And he had four legitimate all-star pitches. And I remember my first time facing him, I, I was like, I'm going to go up there. I'm going to sit fastball away and I'm going to adjust everything else. Psh, brutal. He, he buggy whips a fastball in there that I foul off, you know, then it's a curveball, then it's a changeup, then it's a slider, and then he takes speed off his fastball, and I'm going, what the hell's going on? So I eventually got to the point where I said, you know what, I've got one chance on one pitch, and it's the changeup. So literally, the rest of my career, I sat changeup on him every single pitch. And I actually got a couple of them and I didn't miss them. Thank God. But man, all of his other stuff was just wicked, nasty. At least with Roger, you knew he was going to challenge you every once in a while with a fastball before you got to the split. But uh, Pedro Martinez was just, he was filthy in every sense of the word. Wow. Cool. It's interesting when people say, when you get to talk to players today, who, do they remember these players you're talking about? Are they, didn't <laughs> yeah, they, they, do. they understand it? They remember it. I mean, because of these household names, Compared to baseball today, you have some household big names, but not as many, I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, the turnover is a little bit greater, you know, with these these shorter career spans, I think. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you see flashes of greatness, but it's the consistency that I think was back in those days. And it's kind of funny that, you know, all these guys that I'm around now and have the ability to talk to and they, you know, they'll get the guys that will come up. Did you play against this guy? Did you play against that guy? What was it like, you know? And uh, they're just fascinated that all these guys that they've, you know, they've heard all of these stories about or watched the VHS tapes are all in that grainy, gross video that you watch and you're going, and was he really as nasty as he was? And I can confirm that, yeah, most of the time they were. Wow, that's just crazy. How about, you know, on the fielding side, you know, what's it like turning a double play in the in the majors? Is it like, like the first time you did it, was it awesome or? Yeah. Oh, man, it was a hell of a lot more fun than it is now with these slide rules that they have in place. Uh, you know, there was an art form to uh, turning a double play up the middle because you knew there was the ability to that somebody was going to come in and try and break your legs when you were turning that double play to to break it up. That's probably a term we don't use all that often is that a runner is trying to break up a double play because you can't anymore. Mm -hmm. You've got to slide straight into the bag. It's got to be clean. You can't go wide. 
um, you know, there were plenty of guys that would go, wouldn't even be able to touch the base that were coming after us. But one of my favorite baseball cards is in Wrigley Field. I'm playing shortstop and uh, Damon Buford's coming in and I just turned the double play. I'm up in the air. You know, it's just this picturesque, you know, athletic move that I'm going and, you know, Damon Buford's got his elbow up in the air and he's trying to get to me. Um, but yeah, there was a certain, there was a certain art form that I think is lost now on those double plays where the guy can be a little more casual around the bag and set up for a better throw. Cause he doesn't have to worry about getting smoked by, you know, you know, some of these guys coming in. Not quite as exciting as it was when I was a kid growing up. <laughs> yeah. That's what I remember too. I love that part of it. I, I was like, Hey, it's part of the game. I got to <laughs> figure out how to do it. You know, that was, that's, that was the art of it. It was trying to avoid those, those collisions. So now life, when you decided life after baseball, were you ready? Man, no, I don't know if you know this, but I've got four daughters. And uh, so I was like, okay, as well as I've done, I need to keep working <laughs> because <laughs> we colleges, weddings, and all the all the stuff that goes with life, because you know, that that earning window that we have as ball players is very short. And I knew that uh, I did well, but not well enough to retire on it. But I also love the game too. You know, I, I talked to a lot of my contemporaries that uh, had retired before me that I played with were that were still in baseball. I had guys that retired and were out of baseball and those guys that were out of baseball, some of them wanted to come back and they were having a hard time doing it. So through the process of just kind of talking to some people that I respected and that were still around the game, I said, you know, I need some advice. What are we doing? I know my career is coming to an end. Um, I want to be around the game and to a man, every single one of them said, if you want to stay in the game or if you want to be in the game, stay in the game. And that meant after retirement, you know, coaching, scouting, front office, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but media was an option. And so I went into that, uh, off season with the idea of getting prepared to have a job after baseball. And it just so happened that I got released from the Arizona diamondbacks in July of 2012. And I knew that was it. I was done. I didn't even try and call anybody to go get a job. So I was just like, man, my body's broken. I need, I need a break. And uh, they had a unique situation where they, they fired their television play-by-play guy. Their color commentator uh, had just been, believe it or not, arrested. I mean, I'll let you go back and do the investigation. I don't want to throw them under the bus because I love them. But they, they missed a cup. They lost their TV crew. So they were scrambling to put a group together. In September, they asked me, hey, we've got two open dates that we can't cover. Would you would you think about coming back and doing our color analyst? And I was like, you, well, I was like, first, I was like, you're still paying me so I can I can do whatever you want me to do. But at the same time, I was like, are you sure you want me to do this? Because I've never done it. And uh, they said, yeah, come on out. Talk to my agent. He's like, this will be perfect. It's a demo reel. You'll get your feet wet. And we'll move on from here. So basically, those two games I did with Arizona in 2012 were my demo reel. They okay. were terrible. I was awful. Um, the greatest piece of advice I got in the booth was from Tom Candiotti. Did my first game. Uh, was looking through stats, notes, stumbling, bumbling, you know, trying to sound coherent, trying to say what I thought fans wanted to hear. Went terrible. The next day I showed up, Tom Candiotti came in and he's like, how'd it go? And I'm like, this is hard, man. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And he's like, well, what'd you do yesterday? I said, well, I had the notes. I had my stats. I had this. Cause you get, you get so much information in the booth. It's crazy. He comes in and he looks at my desk. I've got notes. I've got my stat packs and he kind of takes his hand and literally grabs a trash can and just scoops it all in the trash can. And I go, I'm like, bro, what are you doing, man? I'm like I had highlighters all over this thing. He's like, he's like, so what? He goes, well, what did you do for a living? And I said, play baseball. He goes, what do you do? What are you watching when you're watching the game? And I go, I'm watching baseball. He goes, well, tell the people what you're watching. He goes, explain to them why a bad hop happened. Why did the pitcher throw that pitch in that situation? And that's when that light bulb kind of went off is like, that's my job. I've got to add color to the game and bring that to the fans at home. And that was a real turning point for me. And then luckily uh, I've interviewed for the Astros job and I've had this job ever since 2013, but uh, that was, that was a big turning point for me in the booth. And how about you being at the, Oh God, Greg, another question. Go yeah, I was just going to ask you real quick. What, what are some of the the favorite plays that you called out that you can remember now? Once you got that all figured out, what you're doing? Oh man, um, we we've had a couple. We had a you know combined no hitter in New York last year was unbelievable because I played in the the last no hitter at well 
last no hitter thrown against the Yankees at home. I played him. And then last year on June 25th, the anniversary is coming up. I got to call the combined no hitter at the new Yankee stadium. So tying those two things together was pretty remarkable. Um, anytime your Don hits a home run, I'm losing my mind. Uh, those are the ones I remember we have, you know, we have division clinching games. Um, I've been in the uh, clubhouse as a player that celebrated. And then I got to be in there as a broadcaster and cover celebrations. Uh, those are just some of the ones that really kind of pop out early. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool stuff for sure. And mm -hmm. basically how, why the podcast? So tell me about the podcast, <laughs> especially because you're doing the analyst. I think everyone needs to have a podcast now as we're seeing that is the form of medium that people want to consume more and more, especially because it's longer, not the sound bites that you get in baseball or mm -hmm. kind of the entertainment value the ESPN gives versus really giving the behind the scenes, the things that you know and you could say and put your color into it, right? No, you're exactly right. Yeah, and I like this. I like the forum that you guys are going with right here, interviewing people. And I think that's actually one of my podcasts. We're going to shift in that direction and try and get a little more insight because you're right in the sense that everything that you're watching on TV is obviously programmed. There's, there's sound bites, there's timing, there's elements, sponsorships. There's so much production put into what you see on TV that sometimes it, it's not watered down, but it's just kind of brief, you know, it's kind of abrupt at times where you kind of want to expound a little bit or give a little more insight or tell that colorful story. And you don't really get the chance to do that on, on live TV. So why not break it down and take your time to really unpack and unfold or really form an opinion. And I think that's where podcasting is great. And you know, if anybody's listening to this, do it. It's cathartic. I mean, you get to, you get to talk to people, you get to, you know, say some crazy stuff and maybe say, I shouldn't have said that, or man, I really didn't know I felt that way kind of thing. Um, but it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, being on the Believe Network now with uh, Jeff Balky and talking more Astros and really kind of, it's helped me in my broadcast because it really, you know, he asks questions that maybe I don't think about, but it really kind of funnels everything through that Astro lens and kind of, you know, kind of helps you dig a little bit on some of those numbers and expand on what you saw that following week or what you expect to see the upcoming week. No, and I see when you're talking to people like in that way, you're able to really know you're not looking at that sponsor or that thing. You can really give your real true opinion mm -hmm. because there could be people in the back end when you're going to interview or you go in the back interview some of the players, you can't say certain things because it could come back po politically. But then you have your own platform. You can say what you want to say. That's the big thing that goes yeah. back. You say yeah, one thing wrong or you say thing that might tick off listeners. It's your your podcast. You can do what you want to do. Yeah, because they're making the choice to tune in. They're actually tuning in to watch the Astros, <laughs> you know, instead of me. Here, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. You don't need your notes or your uh, your stats cards with you either. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, it's a lot less prep. It's a little more coming straight out of, you know, that's kind of the beauty of it too, is it's kind of impromptu. And if you've got good enough guests and you're having that conversation, it'll spark some conversations that you don't, e you don't even anticipate going. I know, like right now, I'm going to ask you, I forgot to ask you about Mariana Rivera. What what was that like? You know, the closer. <laughs> Dude, man. Yeah, not good. Not, not good at all. And uh, be, having been a switch hitter and, uh, you know, I played on a team with Jose Cruz Jr., and that was maybe five years into my career and I was playing with Tampa. So we were, we were in the American league East. So that opened up the opportunity to unfortunately face him quite a bit. And I'd always gone up there left-handed. He breaks a bat every other at bat that I'm facing him because that cutter's coming in. I can't adjust to it. I'm grounding out to first base. I'm popping up to the left, you know, to left field. It's just, it's, it's a battle. And uh, I watched Jose Cruz jr. Go up there right-handed and he got a base hit. I'm going, dear God, man, what are you doing? He's like, he goes, where's the cut? Where are you? He goes, how do you face him left hand? I go, he blows me up every time it gets jammed because that cutter was moving in. He goes, well, I didn't want that. So I'm going to go up there right-handed, have it move away from me and I'll just slap it the other way. And I was like, man, I didn't have the cojones to do that though. Um, I, I was, I, I couldn't do it, but I, re I respected the fact that Mariano was so good that he turned a switch hitter into a right-handed hitter against him. <laughs> and uh, the best at bat I ever, ever had against Mario Mariano Rivera was in spring training and uh it was you know it's spring training so you're kind of like I'm gonna try something new uh if I don't get a hit here it doesn't matter because there's no impact but he threw me a cutter 
And I mean, I was like, I'm going to open up. I'm going to get the barrel to this and hit it as hard as I possibly can. And I remember I opened up and I smoked one into the camera well at like 150 miles an hour. And it's just rattled. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> the next pitch was a cutter on the outside corner and I hit it up the middle. I was like, dude, why didn't I do this like 10 years ago against this guy? <laughs> yeah, but he, he was really good. Uh, it sounds like he was good. When you faced a, a pitcher, did you have ever a fear when you, that you might get hit, especially ones never? No fear ever. Nope. No, no. But I think that, uh, I don't know how many, I mean, it, just for me personally, if, if that fear was in my mind, it was going to, it was going to hurt my at bat. I didn't want to go in there. I, I feared more that they were going to throw me a nasty slider curveball. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of getting hit. Nope. I mean, granted, I didn't play in an era like now where everybody's 95 plus miles an hour, but, um, I really didn't have that fear of getting hit. No. Okay. All right. All right. Greg has a question. He asked every one of our celebrity guests. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, this is an important one. This is for me to help me get better I hope I'm in my ready. life and for everybody that that listens. Um, what do you think is the most important thing that you've ever learned in life? Man, getting deep. Um, probably the, mo the, the best, I mean, there's a couple of them, but the best piece of advice, and this probably works now that I'm older too, um, it was... It might've been 19. It might've been, it was either, I think it was 1999 that year I got called up, but, uh, I, I had been playing. I, tr I tried to play a little bit of third base and it wasn't going well. I kept making errors and, and, uh, moved back to shortstop, made a couple more errors. And there was just this, this frantic feeling on the field for me, because a lot of people don't realize how fast baseball is actually moving when that ball is put in play. But, uh, my manager, Jeff Cox pulled me aside and just kind of said, you know, you've got more time than you think. And I, my immediate re reaction was bullshit. I'm like, this guy's running a four second, you know, uh, speed down to first base. This guy just, he's got this crazy hop coming off the lip. If I don't catch this clean and I, if I drop it, I got to freak out and throw this thing. He's like, you've always got more time than you think. And immediately the game slowed down for me. And all of a sudden I took a better route to the baseball. I started to get better hops. I was a little more keen to to seeing the ball into my glove, making the exchange and making the throw and throwing guys out by two steps now. And all of a sudden I'm going, damn, dude, thank you. But now that I'm out of the game and I watch our kids on phones, I watch uh, you know how these games are reacting and I'm like, everything's coming at us through a fire hose 24 seven, but you've got more time than you think. You will be okay. If you fail this test, Ask the teacher if you can retake it or what do I have to do the next time to not fail that test? And now that I'm in my, you know, I've just, I just turned 50. I'm going, man, my time's running out when in actuality, it's not, you know, we've got podcasts. We've got, <clears throat> I've got a platform. I can talk to my kids. I can direct them. I can slow things down and I don't need, I have to have these knee jerk reactions. And I think that's probably the best advice I've ever gotten. I still use it to this day, even when I'm having an argument with my wife or I'm trying to correct my kids take a step back. I don't have to answer this right now. I don't have to fix it right now. And I'm just going to take my time and we'll, we'll work it out from there. But, uh, you've always got more time than you think. And it's hard this day and age with as fast as this world's moving. Excellent advice. Thank you. That's advice yeah. I'll have to think about too, Greg. That was really great advice. The best place we people can listen to the podcast is where Jeff. It's on all major platforms, but we're on the Believe uh, Net Podcast Network, B-L-E-A-V. Um, I know that we're on all those major platforms, you know, from Apple to Spotify and uh, that kind of stuff. And, of course, uh, watch every Astro game you can. I'll be on there. All right. We appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks again. Fantastic. No, thank you. All right. That was Celebrity Interviews Live from the Grotto. Greg Hanna, guys. Take care. We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and I'm excited to welcome the program on a gas tire. And also, ex-mayo of American Auto, NBC's American Auto. Guys, thanks for stopping by. Really quickly, so people need to definitely tune in. Season finale is coming soon. Next two episodes coming up. Anna, why should we tune in? Oh, we should tune in because it's uh, it's the best workplace comedy in American network television. Mm -hmm. Duh. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> it is a great half hour workplace comedy. And the finale, of course, is the culmination of the 13 episodes this season, starting with this biblical dumpster fire of a premiere ending with um, this. There was an edict laid out about whether or not we could 
get our stock price high enough so that, that all of us don't end up without a job. And I, I'll let you see how it plays out. But it's full of comedy hijinks. It's a great ensemble. It's full of uh, hilarious, socially relevant, um, topical comedy, hard hitting jokes and a lot of heart. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And so X-Mail, what do we should we expect from your character next two episodes? More comedy, more fun. What do you expect? Yes. Well, uh, well, one more episode. We yep, have one we have more episode. Finale on Tuesday at 830. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, what you can expect for Dory for this final episode is for her scrambling, rambling, nervous and trembling about are we going to make the stock price? You can also see her uh, and Catherine have a little heart to heart. Um, and Cyrus will be um, an onlooker giving his shady side eyes as sure, he does. Sure. And you will you will be able to see that there is a point where Dory locks in and she finally trust Catherine yeah and and Catherine trusts her and I think oh yeah that's realistic in life but in workplace comedies we are human beings reflecting the real world and trust is earned it's not given yeah so I think you can see that and you also can see Dory rocking my favorite hairstyle and that's saying my something. favorite one there have been a lot of hairstyles yeah yeah, yeah. fantastic yeah thank you you guys look like you really yeah. work well together do you, do you play off yeah each other? I do we do. It's been a total privilege. I mean, this show is full that, you know, it's always it's always a crapshoot whether or not you're going to get along with your ensemble. Mm -hmm. This is seven really smart, funny actors um, it's and grateful. grateful. I think that like, we, yeah, grateful. we're so grateful to be on not just on any network comedy, but we're on a network that is known for workplace comedy that makes nothing but the hits to be on a show with a showrunner like Justin Spitzer and then Eric Legend, who not only is a great, you know, number two in the room, but also an amazing director. Like yeah. everybody knows I, I am not shy about saying he's my favorite director. I freaking love Eric. And also too, to be, to have other producers like Aaron Kaplan and Dana Honor, who also make nothing but the hits. I think we're so blessed to not just be on any show, but to be on this show with this cast and this crew. Yeah. And I think when you have people like that who care, it's evident how we show up yep. at work sharp, and how we show up writing. on screen. Yeah, sharp, exactly. Yeah, sharp, funny writing, great costumes, great hair, and um, and yeah, I think it's 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 part of a a, a DNA. I mean, NBA, NBC does this really really well. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's it's it, yeah, it's a it's we're lucky. Yeah, and you all can right. catch everything on Peacock. By the way, you can see all of season one, yep. and all season two on Peacock. Yeah. I love Peacock. If people don't have Peacock, it's definitely awesome. Great movies, great shows. I love watching the pro wrestling documentaries. I'm a former pro wrestler, guys, so I always like to tune in yeah. on Peacock through that. In the, Amazing. Uh, on the and it has, a, it has access to the whole Universal Library, all the NBC workplace comedies. It's mm -hmm. five bucks. I know I sound like I'm pitching it, but it is a it's No, a nice I, I was using the, it before yeah. I got the show. It's really, really good. It's, it's awesome. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks again. Tune in Tuesday. At 8.30 p.m. Thank Eastern you. on NBC. Take care, guys. Hey. Hi. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show and also the media giant effect. I'm excited first to welcome my co-host, Damon Cowboy 347 Harper. How are you, man? I'm excited about our guest. And it's because, again, he's bringing, he's giving back. He's bringing such an amazing story Again, so I'm excited about uh, our guest, aren't you, Damon? Oh, yeah, yeah, I definitely, I'm excited to hear the sweat equity on this side, man. Uh, it's phenomenal testimony. That let, let's, get it, let's get it kicking off. All right, so our guest is Shandron Thomas, who's the president and CEO of Northern Trust Asset Management until early this year where he, he made headlines. In September 2022, he announced to launch his new private investing firm, The Copia Group. How are you, Chandron? That's a challenge, right? You 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 really got out of your comfort zone to say, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to walk away from something because you had some reason that you wanted to do it. So tell us what made you do this. Sure. Well, first of all, Neil, thank you, uh, both you and Damon. It's a pleasure to be here with you both. And I think it comes down to one word. If I cut right to the chase, it's purpose. Uh, you know, I've been tremendously blessed to have a career over nearly three decades that spanned in a business that I love within financial services. And I had the privilege of leading a global asset management firm, sitting on the management group of a public company. But the reality is for me, ultimately, it's about what we give and what we leave. And over the course of that time, I came into contact with a number of things that 
really suggested to me there is an opportunity um, to take the things that I've learned over time and to focus them in a very specific way to not only drive great returns for investors, but very importantly, uh, to bring about you know, positive, measurable, and meaningful social impact or change. And so that's what the Copia Group is really all about. Wow. And, and it's kind of taking that chance in a way, right? Going right. out of your comfort zone and saying, I'm going to do something different. You saw a huge need, right? By going towards this. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's on, it's on a couple of levels. So first of all, the Copia Group, uh, we're, uh, as you said, a private investing fund. And what that firm and what that means is we're investing in either the debt or the equity of privately held U.S. companies, Right. And the need that we saw is on a couple of levels. The first thing that I would share with you is copia, literally the word is the Latin word uh, that means abundance or plenty. It might sound familiar wow. because it's the root of the word cornucopia. Oh, and right. so if you, <laughs> so right. And so if you think about our first focus, it's on what we call the lower middle market, Neil. And those are companies, think about companies maybe in the range of five to a hundred million in revenues, they're established but they're just hitting that phase when they can really scale and grow. And the short answer is what we see increasingly is these companies have less and less access to capital, right? The second thing that we saw is you've probably heard of terms like impact investing. Some people talk about sustainable investing. Uh, suffice it to say, in my time at Northern Trust, it was a clear focus for me. It was one of our top strategic priorities. But I saw this opportunity in the private equity or the private investing space to really drive impact investing, which is an affirmative approach that says we're not just going to go about driving competitive investment returns. We do that, but we're also going to see how can we drive measurable and meaningful mm -hmm. social impact. And so we have a proprietary way of doing that. The last opportunity, Neil, is we believe in economic inclusion. We believe when you actually open the aperture, everybody benefits. And so one of the things that we're committed to, and this is uh, more distinctive, you have some firms that are focusing along these lines, but 50% or more of our portfolio investments, we're making in companies that are owned and are led by ethnically diverse individuals and are women. Oh, wow. That, that's amazing. Uh, uh, you might have to ask a question. There's there's this thing where, you know, information is transformational and, you know, when you have impact, you have influence and then there's there's income. So you transitioning and creating this this vision. Right. What where where did you see like that, that oh the affirming moment where, OK, I'm going to be OK being uncomfortable building this. <laughs> Well, one of the things I would say is, I mean, I've sort of spent my life that way. So uh, for me, um, I have had an experience where over the course of my career, I've worked for some great firms, right, um, that you would know and that are known well. But I've also done things like I've written books. I've written four books. I've started my own business. I like to tell people, you know, I've learned how to lose money with the best of them, right? <laughs> um, in the context of the corporation that I worked in, I was able to start several initiatives uh, and so literally be employee number one. And so over the course of my career and my life, I, I've always had a certain kind of calling to pursue new initiatives or build things or do new things. So really in that respect, Damon, that's not new to me. What's new is stepping apart, say, from a large organization and saying, we're going to build this from the ground up. Um, but again, uh, as they say, nothing venture, nothing gain. Um, I think when you get to the point where your emphasis is beyond your own personal satisfaction or welfare, a whole nother set of opportunities opens up in terms of how you can use not only the skills that you have in the, in the whatever assets you've been able to develop, but also your relationships, uh, because we know that, you know, the social side of things is so important. See, that social side's powerful and it's so important. So like kind of explain because some people will be hearing this saying, oh, this all sounds great, right? But what does this mean for a business? How does this, so, work? how do you, yeah. how do, what is your, because this is what I do is I see so many companies, and this is my take on interviewing so many businesses, entrepreneurs and everything. They tell us something and it seems, I understand it, but for most of the public, they don't. So what is that secret sauce if they're, if people are- okay interested in working with you. All right. So one of the things that we, we have done, so um, Sustainalytics, which is owned by Morningstar, so Morningstar Sustainalytics is a global leader 
in the uh, area of uh, measurement uh, around sustainability, around ESG, around impact, right? What we did is we partnered with them and we came up with a framework. And so the framework, uh, Neil, has five themes, right? The first theme is diversity, equity, inclusion. We have among our themes, equal opportunities. We have among our themes, workforce development, health and wellness and quality education. So the way that you can think about it is we not only identify companies that have great uh, prospects in terms of their strategy and the kinds of things that they're doing to produce financial returns. So we're not trading away returns. I wanna be very clear on that, Neil. But we also find the opportunity to say, how might these companies along one or more of those themes, usually just one in particular, be able to drive impact? We help come along those with those mission-oriented companies and identify those, come up with clear goals and objectives and we translate those into what we would refer to as key performance indicators. So the way that you can think of it, Neil, if you were investing in, our, in one of our uh, strategies, we would not only be able to report back to you the return on investment, but think of us reporting to you the return on impact over time. So you're able to see in what people might refer to is that double bottom line impact. Okay. So and so, I'm going to go with another follow up, Damon, and I'll let you ask the next question. I'm going to go more the. So, is it basically you create funds with these businesses in them for people to invest? How's that kind of work, in a way? So, 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 what, what we can actually deliver um, our investment value proposition in a variety of ways. And so, if you think of firms like ours, like we can't front run and say like what all the products are, but what I can tell you is the way that they would be delivered are a. You can have a fund uh, where people could prospectively invest in. B, you could have what you might refer to as a separately managed account. So say there was a large institutional uh, asset owner, like a pension plan, and they wanted to work with us. They could establish an account and say, we want investments to go along this side. So usually it's either through some sort of kind of structured vehicle, could be a fund, could be other kinds of structures, or it could be a segregated or separately managed account. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good, Damon. Uh, yeah. Uh, so now with with the the data and research, right? Um, looking at like the practicality, right, of your production. How are you correlating this? Well, in terms of like the social impact, like right. intellectually, how are you incorporating that with with your work? Because uh, yeah. this is this is huge. This yeah. Yeah. So one of the things is interesting because I, I'm glad you asked that question because it's one of these areas that's evolving. But one of our risk is you can let, you know, perfect be the enemy of good. So so what we do, um, to be very frank, um, you know, we don't necessarily know a priori seven year, several years out how much we're going to be able to drive and working alongside a company. But what we can know up front is the level of commitment that a company has by virtue of their mission and their values. We can see the opportunity set and we can put clear and transparent frameworks in place where why we can measure it. Now, here's what I, I would say, if you could appreciate me saying this, Damien, we know what more good looks like when we see it. And right. the most important thing that we do is we not only transparently tell investors who are working with us what we're doing, what those portfolio companies are doing, but this is important. We hold ourselves accountable to it. So we're transparent about our own hiring standards, how much diversity we have among our leadership team and with our, within our, our ranks. What we're going to be doing in our own reports is talking about what we do in terms of what wow. vendors that we work in and those kind of things. And so impact is not just about the companies that we invest in or with. Impact is also about the standard that we hold ourselves to in terms of the firm that we have the privilege to steward. Oh, that's... Wow, thank you. For that great stuff thank you for that. so <laughs> you're basically b2b and b2c in a way right b2b yeah. where the businesses you're identifying creating those reports it's almost like putting together funds where you're not going to tell what businesses are involved in this i don't know and you're seeing that if they hit they check all the boxes because you'd only want to be involved with companies that are hitting those areas of which makes it then you have consumers that will invest in those funds or different things, right? So you're B2B and B2C, am I correct? In a kind yeah, of- Yeah, so you, you can think of it that way, the way that you can think of it. So to be fair, if you think about um, private equity and or broadly speaking, private investing, um, there are certain regulations around it. Um, the way that it generally goes, if you have certain products that are considered say private placements, 
that means that only accredited investors can invest in that. So in simple terms, what that means is your typical investor in our fund uh, or our products, the kinds of investors that we would talk to would either be A, institutional asset owners, again, foundations, endowments, pensions, corporations, the like, but also it could be high net worth individuals or families who meet those requirements. And again, this is from a regulatory construct. So it tends to be the case when you look at uh, this type of investing, when you're investing in private companies, it's not something that you would see uh, uh, in terms of like smaller retail clients, given the regulatory framework around it to protect those clients. Okay. Damon, yeah, no, that's what, so like, this is such great information, uh, Damon. The thing that I think he's, that he's hitting every area that's giving back and yet still creating something that is wealth transferable that everyone can be well, that's the great thing. Why can't people look at not just benefiting the rich, but benefiting everyone and also benefiting the way society needs to become, right, Damon? Yeah, I, I got I'm, I got chills just thinking about the, the passion work because there's um, there's protection in the, in the articulation of the architecture. I love it. I, yeah. I, am, I am blown away. Yeah, one of the things, if I could add to it, um, because uh, really, Neil, your your comment brings this out so much. We talk about many times, quote unquote, a trickle down effect, uh, uh, wealth effect, but the practical reality is that's not true. And so the way that you create more wealth, in a sense, um, if you want to really impact the, the, the whole of society, is you have to create more inclusion. And yes. so when we're able to provide opportunities to invest in and with, like we said, these lower middle market companies who have less access to capital on a relative basis, or if we're able to invest in wonderfully talented women entrepreneurs or ethnically diverse entrepreneurs, it's not just about what happens for them and their companies and scaling and growing. It's the communities they're connected to. It's the charities that they give to. It's the people that they employ. And so we're growing equity. And the way that you, the single biggest way that you counteract wealth inequality is by having ownership or equity interest. And that's ultimately one of the things that we're seeking to create. Oh, that's powerful. There's this quote by Saad the Guru when it comes to human flourishing that uh, you, you can't be afraid of inclusion. Inclusiveness is the paramount characteristic, characteristic of human flourishing. Love it. It's such, such, such great information. So I, like what makes me excited about it is the fact you're creating something. So you are an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs create something out of nothing. You created something out of nothing in the way you've framed this and went and did this. And you're doing something that you're right about the trickle down effect. If you're just giving tax cuts to the rich, but the rich are not giving back by employing people to the right people, meaning so that there's a diversity, inclusion, all the different aspects, education, growth, being able to move up the ladder in the corporate ladder or whatever, then it's worthless. But if you're a business that is trying to transform society, that's entrepreneurship. If you didn't know the definition of entrepreneurship, you have to be able to transform. You have to be transformative. You are. I'd love to be transformative. You are transformative. Because you're doing something, creating something out of nothing and transforming. So it's such a huge story. What do you think is the biggest challenge to get the word out? What would you say for yourself? You know, um, so that I would say the single biggest challenge in something like this. Now, it's true for um, almost any type of firm like this. It's getting out of start. Because in order for us to do all the wonderful things that we seek to do, we have to raise the capital to invest. And so um, needless to say that there are any variety of structural impediments um, to getting access to the capital um, that often sort of flows the same way for many decades and generations. So, so uh, for us, um, there's no shortage of people that we run into that have deep uh, excitement or belief and passion about what we're doing. There's no shortage of talented people for us to work with or employ or bring to, to the business. Um, so again, it's really getting um, access to those people who steward capital and allocate that capital so we can make the vision and mission that we have a reality. Wow. All right. Well, okay, Damon, last question. Yeah. How, how, do, how does the, um, 
the demographic that you you cater to, man, how do they how do you connect with them and voluntarily? How do how does it how do you guys connect? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's that's a it's a great question, but there is no single answer to it, because um, this is one of those things where it truly takes a vision. Uh, and it also takes a village, right? So right. whereas we have a vision, the way that we connect is by sharing that vision broad and wide. And I think no matter how much you plan, you can't think you're so smart. There's just an instance of grace that be befalls any great successful endeavor. Um, mm -hmm. That as you're able to, it could even be vehicles like this. You never know who you become connected to. So it's clear the buckets of kind of people that we need to connect with. We need to connect with people who are allocators of capital to have capital invest. We have to connect with business owners um, to partner with them, to invest in and with them. We have to uh, partner with other people who maybe invest, would invest alongside us. So there's all of these different, in a sense, communities. Um, but ultimately, I think it ties to a lot of what you were saying earlier. It's, it's mission that pulls us together. Mm. And so to the extent you can articulate that, you can share that, you can put yourself in places where you can connect with similarly purposed and minded people who share those values, that's mm. when the sort of the magic happens. Oh, I totally, and so let me give you an example. <laughs> Every business has to have a mission vision. This is something that Marie Forleo talks about. You cannot just have a business, you have to have a mission as well. So for example, mine, is to stop cyberbullying with kids and help kids. And that's mine working with organizations found out foundationally that way. So every business has to have a mission. Yours is mission-based with profit as well. So it's a very, it's something creative and, and innovative. Where can people find information? So, so, so they want to yeah. say, that especially if they're like, I don't want to invest in things that <laughs> I, I don't believe in. I don't want to invest in things that are, are they're not mission driven, but I still want to invest. I still want to make money, right. but I still right. want to also give back at the same time in so many ways. Yep. So, um, so uh, it's easy. So the first thing is definitely connect with us online. So uh, we're the Copia Group. So if you go to copiagroupllc.com, uh, you can connect and find tons of information uh, about us there and let's also connect with us there. Um, I would say we tend towards uh, connecting more through business channels. So um, the most typical place we are from a social standpoint is on LinkedIn. Holy so you can also join us on LinkedIn uh, with the Kobe Group. We, we, we're getting increasing followers every day. And so I would say those are the two primary ways. The last thing I would say, you know, I've got a great team of folks. Uh, my founding partner is a gentleman, Anthony Hoy. Um, there's one benefit I'll leave you with, Neil, that I have. Uh, when your name is Shundron, I'm the only one I know. Um, so I'm about one of the easiest people to find if people are looking for me, whether it's through LinkedIn or Instagram. Probably if you pull up Shundron Thomas, about connect with me on LinkedIn as well. So we're going to definitely stay <laughs> yeah. on LinkedIn. I'm trying to create the same social media strategy I'm doing with the media giant on Facebook with LinkedIn because I said, you know what, I can't niche down. I know everyone, so I'm just going <laughs> to share everybody's content to my twenty thousand connections, and then LinkedIn will reward me, which is the craziest thing. Do the same strategy I did on Facebook group. I just haven't had the time. This weekend I am. So definitely we're going to definitely connect. It's such great information and I appreciate you stopping by. And again, Damon, awesome, great conversation. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you both. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of The Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? I am beside myself with excitement because we're going to talk to one of my absolute favorite actors ever flash gordon absolutely so again sam jones flash gordon sam when we talked the last time welcome to the show when we talked the last time you know what blew me away it was ultimately how of a humble man you are but really i wish i could have had about 52 stories of watching flash gordon because i literally watched it maybe 20 or 25 times the movie and there's not many movies in my life that I watched that many times. Why do you think so many people watch your movie over and over again? Well, first of all, guys, thank you for having me. Well, I think the question is, yes, it's a great point. It's why is Flash Gordon still relevant? I mean, we, we filmed this 40, what is it, 43 years ago, came out 
42 years ago. I think he's relevant, uh, uh, relevant because he's just a guy. So the world, every every uh, man, woman, and child, uh, they'll look at this character, Flash Gordon, and go, wait a minute. Oh, my gosh, these challenges. He's faced with adversity. Oh, he's vulnerable. How's he going to do it? He has no superpowers. And then he has six. He, you know, he comes in. He helps. Uh, he helps. In, he defends innocence. He neutralizes the threat and or brings them to justice. So I think they say, wait a minute, he's doing this. He's just a guy. He has no superpowers. If he can do that, then by golly, I can do it too. And I think that's why he's relevant. And I think that's the message. And yes. <laughs> totally love that. I mean, it's like, just like you said, it's like the underdog winning. And that just makes everybody feel great. You know, one of the favorite ones I loved, you know, later James Bond that you had fought James Bond, you know, Timothy Dalton, you know, yeah. as a, as the prince. And uh, that was an amazing fight, you know, with, with the tilting, you know, little platter that you guys were on. Yeah. And you know, what was that scene like doing that? I mean, how do they do that? It looks like it was real, but I mean, you just standing in a green screen or how, how do they do that? No, we, we, we had blue screen back then, but there was, there was really no, the only, no, that was all, that was a, that was the battle disc. It was a rotating disc. And when it was elevated in its highest elevation, I think it was about 25 feet. Wow. So what you saw when the camera looked down, you saw infinity space. Um, but we had just a bunch of stacked boxes. And when we fell, we fell quite a bit. We fell onto these stacked boxes, which was quite funny, but it actually worked. Remember, <laughs> we're going back to 1979. Uh, but, yeah, we had three technicians. We had uh, two operating the um, the spikes two different sections of spikes. And then of course we had the other technician operating the tilt of the, of the battle disc. So yeah. it, it wasn't so much that we, I mean, we, we rehearsed it for weeks, but uh, if we had rolled and tumbled onto the spikes, of course we wouldn't have been hurt because they were actually, it was an ingenious idea. It was um, bicycle pumps that they used for the shaft. Yeah. You know, hollow bicycle pumps, uh, this metal and the, the tips of the spikes were a hard rubber. So if we had rolled on it, then we'd have to stop production and repair it. So yeah. but Timothy was great. You know, James Bond. He wasn't James Bond then, of course. No, nope. we, we, we had that great chemistry and camaraderie and conflict of, you know, being representing um, England and he and then, of course, me representing America. So, so we brought uh, a lot of that history, good history into it, and uh, just had a lot of fun. Oh, that was great. It de definitely does. And I said I have so many favorite scenes of the movie, but what about for the time you shot it and how Greg and I love it so much? You said the ordinary, that you did it, you were able to do it, uh, Sam, just out of nowhere, meaning that you were just a guy. I think that's one reason, but I also think that science fiction at that time and just the different things and how you were able to save the world and how you had so many challenges to try to save that world, right? There's so many, you just did it. Kind of like how we had to get on Zoom right now. There was complications, but you saved it. You saved yourself. Yeah. That's the character, Flash Gordon. And I think that yeah. he is the only superhero I've ever, heard, I guess, have dealt with that really had no superpowers and yet could be able to save the world. The athlete, the football star, and how he thought he could conquer everything. And he had to figure everything out and had to ask for other people's help. It wasn't just, and that's the other part of a being a leader. Leadership is what Flash Gordon is as well. How he was able to become a leader to save the world. Yeah. He, absolutely, Neil. I, I just think it came down to, of course, it, he. I got the part also because there was a naivete um, uh, about Sam J. Jones in his in that those years, twenty two years old, twenty three, and of course for Flash Gordon. And when it came to somebody in trouble, you know, even Sam J. Jones or Flash Gordon, we don't call board meetings if there's if somebody's getting attacked right now. We don't call the board meeting and call in advisors. We, we you know, unless we have time to plan. Usually, Flash Gordon didn't have a whole lot of time to plan. 
So we just uh, reacted. We, so his character just reacted. And, and I, I think that's the other message he sends. If it's if something is happening right now uh, and there's no time to plan, you you got to you got to go with your your best instincts. And usually the best instincts is common sense, practical thinking. That's it. And if you have the time to plan, you call in your advisors and you seek counsel on any issue. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so